Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm Miles Irving. And I just thought I'd say a little bit about really the overall purpose of, of the podcast. Just for new listeners or those who've been listening for a while and wouldn't mind a recap. So I think the idea behind the podcast is we're, we're really celebrating wildness uh, in all its complexity and self-organization, really. So when we say wild, we're not thinking about the kind of chaotic sort of lawlessness where people get hurt or other people rule the roost um, because there's no one to keep them in check. That's that's very distant from our idea of wildness. It is this um, idea that when everything works together in a complex way with lots of diverse elements in relationship and in kind of two-way flows and connections, that what happens is a wonderful kind of organization that becomes um, as what's known as an emergent property. So basically you have all these different parts and then something comes out of the uh, the different parts being well related and that emergent property is basically that the whole thing works together as if as if someone was in charge but but in fact they're not and then from that they, they so that's an idea that, that you could apply to ecosystems but it's also an idea that you could apply to uh, the human body the human body is an amazing self-organizing system but enhanced by having the right connections to other human bodies, other people. So that's another kind of self-organizing system is society. And then um, when our bodies are rightly related to other species and in the sense of our diet, that we are actually consuming products from plants and animals that are from the wild, that those uh, re- complex relationships of um, a, a very diverse diet of of wild species actually enhances the complexity of our body, or actually works with the innate complexity of our body, and creates the emergent property of of um, health. So uh, perhaps not such a brief summary, but but I think you perhaps pick up there that there's three themes: there's the human body, there's society or community or family, even, and there's the ecology of either our surroundings or the, or the sort of meta ecology of the biosphere and just something to just to just sum all that up for me i'm personally working with the idea of home that all three of those spheres body community and uh, ecology are a kind of place for us to dwell but uh, insofar as we're not really um managing to tap into the fullness of that complexity um in in any of those spheres that the sort of connectivity the relational reciprocity and so on we are, in actual fact, strangers or estranged or exiled from the home of bodies, communities, and ecology. So the idea of uh, World Wild is to just, I guess, proclaim the hope that it doesn't need to be that way, that we could find our way back in to the home of where we are. And it's not a matter of going on a journey in space uh, to be somewhere else. It's a matter of actually staying right here and, and finding out what's, what's actually here for us to settle into and be at home with. Um, so that's that's you know introducing these uh, overarching themes. I think some or all of that gets touched on pretty much every week in various different ways in all these fascinating conversations. And this week we've invited back a guest who's been uh, here for a conversation before, uh, Wukas Wuchai, the um, amazing ethnobotanist um, and forager and um, self-confessed wild man, or aspiring wild man anyway, of Poland. Because uh, Wukash has a book which he's wanting to uh, tell us about. That's kind of the, the the main motive he has. My main motive is he's such an interesting chap, and uh, it's always good to hear his thoughts and bounce ideas backwards and forwards. So you'll see um, unfolding in, in at least part of this conversation that we have a slight difference of view regarding the feasibility of um, a sort of massive move towards the consumption of wild food by the global population. I think that's partly because you know I'm a 
pathological optimist, I do see the the uh, the huge hurdles that we'd need to overcome before we got to that. But it, it made me, uh, in, in just thinking about how that conversation that you're about to hear panned out, I just thought I'd like to state a bit more clearly and um, in a bit more detail how um, I end up having such an optimistic view with regard to the future of, of humanity and the biosphere, which is not to say I necessarily think that what, what I'm going to articulate is going to happen, but it's just more a case that I certainly think it is possible that we could pursue a completely different route to the one we're doing now as a species and that we have, you know, we have uh, a very strong position, a starting point really from which to do that. So basically the, 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 uh, the view that I'm going to articulate now, it could be viewed as a, an exceptionalist position. And actually we've been um, accused of that by someone who, um, yeah, just took, took some of the sort of critical points we've made um, around veganism to to um, imply an exceptionalist view of humanity. In actual fact, the more I think about it, think think I'd have to plead guilty. I do think that I have probably an exceptionalist view of humanity. That doesn't mean that I think that we have a right to um, be abusive or in a position of um, well, kind of sovereignty over other species. But let me explain what I do mean then. So what I mean is when we look at a human being and we look at the human body and the level of connectivity in the neurons in our brain and running right through our nervous system, the level of sophistication of uh, the, the, the communication that comes through our gut, I think which is called the enteric nervous system, I think that's right, and just sort of what an unbelievably sophisticated thing, therefore, the, the human body is overall. Bearing in mind that part of that is a coupling and a partnership with, with a whole host and colony, uh, incredibly complex colony, um, as we talked about with, with Fred Gillum last week, um, of microorganisms, which are part of that communication system. So in that sense, you know, this is obviously a collaboration with, with a vast number of other species. But nevertheless, what we end up being, by way of being a conscious being, um, is vastly uh, superior to any other species, just in sense of, of our capacity to, to feel, to know, and to, um, to, to, to conceive ideas and to implement them. Now, that makes us um, quite unique. Going on from there, when we take the sophistication of, let's just say our nervous system, we know it's a lot more than the nervous system, but let's just talk about nervous systems to, 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 to make it easier to say. If we look at how we can integrate and, and uh, weave a sort of fabric um, of communication, of emotional bonding, and uh, coordinate our activities to, to, to do far more sophisticated things that we could do on our own with other human beings. That, again, is another very exceptional thing in terms of just how far-reaching that is compared to other species. And then thirdly, when we take both of those things and we look at how we are able to interact with our surroundings in very complex ways, not least because we can make a plan, but um, we can also, one of the most important things about our nervous system and the social thing that I've already alluded to is our capacity to to learn based on feedback. So, you know, we we have a, a, a certain level of knowledge and then we act and then there's feedback that comes that, that from outside ourselves or inside ourselves in the case of our internal nervous system, which uh, enables us to, to, uh, to know better and to therefore find a more accurate way of uh, coupling with our surroundings or with other people or of using the capacity that our body has it's an incredibly sophisticated communication system but when that's 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 sort of pointed outwards to how we relate to our 
um, ecosystems and the biosphere and beyond that to the cosmos in, in some sense, our capacity essentially to adapt is incredible. So every other species has a niche within an ecosystem, but it doesn't design that niche. Uh, and, and, it, and it happens basically blindly through evolution or perhaps your view of evolution is that it isn't quite as blind as that, but nevertheless, it's incredibly slow and incremental. Whereas my sort of final point really is that we are able to reconceive of that, uh, that niche. You know, we're, we're able, able to redesign the niche that we have. So if we drew on all of these capacities that I've just alluded to with the specific purpose of creating an adaptive fit with our surroundings in order to um, get the resources that we need, for example, food, then that adaptation would, would, would take us to a level beyond anything that we've ever seen. Now, the, the, the point is we have already uh, lived for 250,000 years on this planet and we have altered ecosystems very greatly and in fact we occupy the role of a keystone species which is a, a species that has uh, a much greater influence on the overall functioning of the ecosystem than any other species for example wolves and beavers fall into that category so we've already occupied that niche but all the time what we were planning for is basically to get our own needs met now we have a bit of a backlash where we're sort of planning to not wreck the ecosystem by engaging in first of all conservation and second of all, the, the latest idea is, is one about rewilding. But I think that both of these things are a mistake because on the one hand, conservation generally tries to recreate the landscape conditions of one or other method of human land management, which was originally designed to get resources, whether it's cutting reeds to keep the birds there on some wetland area, whereas previously reeds were cut and that habitat was created to, to get reeds for thatching and so on, or whether it's some kind of farming method, you know, with pasture, or meadows, you know, which was originally to get food. Now we do those things just to create the, bio, the, the, the biodiversity, which, which I think is a kind of strange activity in a way. I'm not sure why we don't just find ways to um, use the land now that would support biodiversity. And then rewilding is about going back to just letting nature just take over and go back to what it was. But the point is, as I've mentioned on previous podcasts, biodiversity was greater uh, in this country when we had a whole sort of complex uh, array of different habitats because of our land management practices with a view to us meeting our needs as human beings. So you know, in both cases, I think these things are ill-conceived. Really, the point I'm trying to get to is we have reached a stage in our, in our development as a civilization where we can stand back and reflect on the consequences of our activities with regard to the biosphere. And especially when it comes to food, we can see how we are wrecking the planet with industrial agriculture. However, we can also see that we are wrecking our bodies through industrial agriculture because of the standard of our diet being so heavily dependent on carbohydrates and uh, processed foods and so on. We are alienating ourselves from the health-giving properties of the wild ecosystem. But we are at the point where we can see these things and conceive of a possible alternative world. And we're also at the point where we realize that it is complexity and emergent properties which support the fabric of life. So we can deliberately conceive of a new food system as well as a new other systems that, 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 that supply us with the resources we need, whether that's housing or clothing or other kinds of infrastructure around energy. Um, we can conceive of a world where we deliberately make these systems very complex and we weave in the life cycles of other species in order to create not only what we need, but a robust, resilient system that promotes the health of, of the biosphere.
So that, those might sound um, very uh, speculative thoughts, but I think when you when you sort of anchor it on the core thought that life is supported by complexity and that we have a capacity to to deliberately create the relationships that we have with with ecosystems um, on purpose and that we can see that and know that for the first time in in our history as a species that's my perhaps rather long-winded um explanation of of why i'm so optimistic i think we have these capacities and we're at the point where where the uh interrelatedness capacity between us and other people is 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 vastly enhanced by the current level of global communications through things like the internet including things like uh, podcast which can can share these ideas so there we are confessions of a pathological optimist so now we'll uh, we'll get on to the conversation with Wukesh so today I wanted to talk about my book on the wild side um, this book was originally published in Polish about 10 years ago but I decided to translate it into English because I thought it's quite relevant it's still quite relevant the book is about understanding what is wild because a lot of people seek wilderness and seek being wild they seek wild food and i thought it's a whole phenomenon and um worth discussing and describing and i try to look at it through my own life so the book is like little stories it's a collection of stories from the times when I was trying to cut off from civilization and do various things to be closer to our ancestors. But uh, these stories all are intersected with stories about hunter-gatherers or about other people who, who are sometimes relevant to the topic wild. The book starts from discussing the famous book Into the Wild hmm. by, by Krakauer describes the story of a young guy who goes to Alaska and then he's found dead. He was trying to be, to be, to be independent and wild in the woods. So I was also looking for being independent from, from the civilization. I, I, at some point I bought a piece of land and, and I tried to live on, on forage stuff and build a primitive shelter and, you know, spend some time there. Mm, but my my story is different because I gave up. I was more I, I was more secure. I was in my in my own area, my own region. I um you know I I could easily just you know go back to civilization. And for many years I had this feeling of failure that I so easily gave up. You know that actually I realized it was so difficult for me. But um, I learned a lot. Hmm. So the book is actually that one of the purposes of the book is saying saying to people how important it is to try, you know, to finding your own limits, encouraging people, and also showing the diversity of understanding what is wild. For, for some people, it would be being independent in terms of food. For some people, it would be like making their own clothes or maybe not having electricity, not having internet. Actually, now it's actually very difficult to find people, young people, who don't use smartphones or internet. This is something that is not in the book because it's, uh, I was giving an interview to a, a journalist in Poland and she said, you know, I was looking for these people in the forest who are independent, who don't use mobile phones. And I couldn't find any. 
And I said, this is not true because there are people who don't use phones, but they are so isolated, they, they don't care about you, you know? Once you don't have the phone, once you don't want to be the part of the matrix, you won't bother to facilitate journalists coming to you. You want to be safe and you don't want to be famous. You don't want to be interviewed. And actually, I could give a few examples of people who don't, don't have um, mobiles or don't use them most of the time. But um, I didn't want to help her. I didn't want to spoil their fun. So, you know, I, I talk about so many topics in the book, also about the, um, uh, the spiritual part of what is wild and going to shamanism and like, like even comparing with the, with Krakauer's book, like I, my, my call was that um, my destiny was to go back to my um, area where my family comes from. Because I, I was doing PhD in Warsaw and when I, when I wanted to go back to nature, I thought the, the most important place to be there is the place where my ancestors come from because I will have the support of the ancestral spirits of the land. So sometimes, I also discuss it, sometimes people go to the tropics, go to another country where, where they fall in love with, and maybe they don't have the support of their ancestors to do it. Well, where does, um, that, where does that leave uh, all the mongrels amongst us, Wukash, who our ancestors are from here, there, and everywhere? No, no, no. I mean, my family is also mongrels because uh, my mother's and father's side are from different areas, you know, 300 miles. But it was symbolic. Mm. No, I actually, but this is like, I don't, I don't say you have to do it. I have to, you have to go back to your area. I was discussing various issues. Like if you go to a warm place, you know, some, some kind of fertile subtropical place, it's actually much easier to be off the grid. Mm. There are, you know, that's why hippies go to Spain. You know, you live in a cave in Spain or in the Canaries. I realized that um, this year it was my first time in the Canaries, and I saw these people, you know, living in little crevices on the on the sea, and the temperature throughout the whole year is like between 20 and 35. And if you have access to some cash, you go, you walk to the local shop, you get some wine, a baguette. So there are just so many ways, you know, or you can even, you know, get food from free from other people, or maybe catch some fish, or collect some opuntia, you know, opuntia fruits there. There's lots of opuntias there. So um, I was discussing these various aspects of what is to be not only wild, but maybe natural, you know, like what is to be, to have natural life. Mm. It's better to be a hunter-gatherer hunting for meat, or maybe we should go even further back in history to being like apes, you know, living on, shoots and fruits and only small things, eggs maybe. So in a way, it's obvious that I want to show people that there is no one definition of it. And of course, you cannot go back, you cannot become a hunter-gatherer. Also from, from, a, from ecological perspective, if everyone tries to uh, hunt and forage, there will be enough food in, in um, in uh, in the world, and I remember there is a. I remember your discussion with Richard Maybe. You remember there was this exchange of letters yeah, in, yeah. in some. The Guardian. It was in the Guardian. Yeah. It was in the Guardian when he was like skeptical about 
being able to use the, the wild resources to feed people and you are like very optimistic. So I am very skeptical on the side of, of, uh, of calories, but I see the value of it per se, like the spiritual value, the also supplying other micronutrients, maybe not like calories. And um, I actually, after all these years of foraging, I think there's a lot of potential is something I would call semi-wild. So not like going to the forest and, you know, digging out orchids because they have calories or lily bulbs, but rather looking at the whole agri-ecosystem. The, the countries in, in, in the south of Europe and, uh, and in Asia, there's, it's very common to use uh, weeds as food. Yeah, uh, because they they are the part of the whole system, so they were a byproduct of um, cultivation of plants. So you can also look at at foraging as a complementary thing. You know, instead of having these monocultures sprayed with chemicals, we could go back to organic agriculture and have foraging as a component of it. So you could forage in a garden or near a garden. And then it makes sense because it's very efficient because you, from one place, you have a lot of things. So we go like to permaculture and like, if you look at the Southern Europe, you have olive groves and, you know, I, I, in some places in, in the South of Europe, I saw like olive groves and potatoes grown in between olives and people gathering weeds, you know? So for me, this is like, this is actually something we can propose to people because this is more energy efficient to combine per, uh, like perennial crops, you know, trees and maybe growing some vegetables and also collecting nettles and collecting, you know, goose foot and, um, mm. and other things and making it into a whole like system. But uh, as I said, in the book, I don't talk about only about food. I also talk about, um, about other aspects. Well, just, just to quickly pick up on what you were, what you were saying there, because, um, yeah, I mean, I'm 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 aware that your main your main focus is pretty much on on an individual journey, right? That's so, so that is a particular focus. But um, I guess I've always been thinking about where the where the answers might lie in this other vein that you've just touched on about a global food system and so on. Yeah, and um, so I mean, I think that I think that's really interesting, and 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 like for me. When we talk about going back to being hunters and gatherers, I think I think it's important to sort of see that we can't we can't recreate that situation because it is a situation of a the ecosystem as it was then and b the population density as it was then and c the the uh, the nature of human culture, which is like we are so different now to what we were ten thousand years ago culturally speaking that we we might as well be a different species. But the the thing that that, that we re, re, that we remain that we were ten thousand years ago is unbelievably flexible. I mean, that's we are we are the species that can fit in pretty much any niche. I mean, I guess rats are similar, but I think we're probably yeah. more effective than rats in terms of being yeah. you know to sustain life anywhere. But the point for me is is just this that that what we did when we transitioned from hunting and gathering to agriculture is that we started to uh, disrupt and undermine the life systems in one way or another. 
in, in, in some respects, we, we enhanced them. And like, I keep quoting this thing from E.O. Wilson that apparently in the period just before the Industrial Revolution, there probably was the, the peak of biodiversity in the UK. And that wasn't a hunting and gathering society, although there was a lot of use of wild stuff, like the use of the forest was pretty much managing wild resources. But the point is humans had so many different ways of being on the land. They were creating all these different habitats and that was creating biodiversity. But still, at the center of that paradigm was, was plowing uh, the soil, which is obviously disrupting the ecology of, of the soil, which is very destructive. So the point is for me, is not whether we call something hunting and gathering that we might go back to something we call hunting and gathering, is can we go back to a situation where our activities, including what we do to get the resources that we need yeah. is actually enhancing the complexity rather than depreciating the complexity. Because to me, the, the, the point of life systems is that they are unbelievably complex, that they have a diversity yeah. of species and, and, and there's all this exchange going on. The question to me is, can we devise uh, food systems which, which, which mimic or increase the level of complexity that's there in, in, in wild ecosystems? Whether you call that hunting and gathering is not really the point. But the thing is, like, you know, organic agriculture and permaculture, as it stands, my concern is it, it doesn't support, like, bird life and, and mammals and things. And, you know, it probably do very well for the micro, microbiology of the soil and the, the smaller organisms. But, I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but permaculture does. If you have, like, like a forest garden, yeah. you know, a proper yeah. permaculture, of course it enhances biodiversity. But uh, biological systems are very complex, and um, and sometimes um, you know it's not enough to just plant you know diverse crops because uh, a lot of species have very uh, slow migration. So in order to actually arrive at a, like in like an ancient forest biodiversity, you would have to bring a lot of stuff into the ecosystem. Once it's lost. Sometimes it's very difficult for it to to go back. So if you start a food production production system which is like adjacent to an ancient forest, some of the ancient forest plants and animals would easily migrate, you know. Mm. It is directly adjacent. But if you have an isolated island, then it's actually more more difficult to create biodiversity, which is not only weeds, you know, and, and uh of course, it's easier for insects or for, you know, fungi, but for plants, the migration sometimes is really, really difficult. It's a, but as I said, you know, the, the, my book is not only about food. It's about, you know, the diversity of understanding these things. Like, you know, in a way, you, ha you can have an angler who lives in a, in a council estate and he goes fishing, you know, and he, he's like a proper hunter-gatherer, you know, he goes fishing and he gets the fish from, from the sea or from a lake. And, um, or like in Poland, it's very common to go mushroom hunting. So, again, you, 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 this is foraging in its pure form. I mean, foraging for mushrooms now doesn't differ from foraging by some peoples, you know, in, in, in ancient past. So... It's a, it's a mosaic of behaviors and um, also like our mode of transport. Once we walk more, yeah, 
someone said that that you know in order to understand the landscape you have to walk through it it's also like a part of being primitive you know using your foot your feet and not not cars and planes yeah yeah well it's removing the the artificial that keeps us from actually being in contact with things isn't it and there's also the artificial division between the city and the the countryside you know people think oh, i'll move to the countryside to be more natural and have this more natural way of life but actually being in the countryside you have to drive all the time you are so dependent on the car it's crazy it was the worst thing for me when i um when i moved to the countryside that i had to buy a better car because i wanted to you know feel secure it doesn't break down and winter snow and blah 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 and uh, I, I realized that how much driving I, I make which is crazy actually now in the times of coronavirus we you know we have a a sort of lockdown in poland similar to britain maybe not so severe because we don't have many cases but you know it's like you know we are discouraged from from you know moving without reason and uh, have I, my, I, I also got a lot of food provisions um, stock, stocked up for at least six months. And um, so I don't need to go anywhere. And I go anywhere very little. And I realized, you know, how much energy I was wasting by just driving around, you know, uh, for a stupid reason sometimes. I mean, this whole uh, coronavirus thing, which I'm very skeptical about, and I think it's, it's like, too much actually too much attention giving to it and uh, it, it's spoil it's not about spoiling the economy because maybe the economy should change but actually about restricting our basic rights i think it's outrageous what the governments do but um this also gives us an opportunity everything can be used for our development so even this difficult situation can be used to re-evaluate re you know our resources where we live you know, do we have access to clean water in, in case the electricity stops? Yeah. Do we have access to clean water to a spring? Do we have uh, food store, stored? You know, in, in many traditional societies, the food is stored for, for the year. Like you would have a long winter and you would have some cellar and, and, and you would have lots of food there. Yeah, well, we've outsourced that, haven't we? Yeah, and you know there were these uh, people who were trying to do it and stock up on food. Were like said they are selfish, but actually this is a normal thing to do. I think everyone has a right to store food for a year because it's um, it's a natural cycle. It's a farming cycle, and of course the many hunter gatherers didn't store food where they lived in more stable environments without heavy winter, for example, without the a very long dry season so there are many societies that they know like in the tropics they wouldn't store food they would just go hunting or maybe starving for a couple of days maybe once a year but um also many hunter-gatherers stored food you know like uh, native americans would dry meat you know buffalo and for winter or people would store nuts and store you know various kinds of roots and uh, make make holes in the ground, uh, putting you know fermenting leaves in the ground, and um, and uh, so this whole crisis, you know, makes us think again. It's very good for thinking about food systems. Yeah. Where is our food from? What happens if we don't have access to our local supermarket? So it's an amazing uh, exercise for me as well. You know, like 
what, what can I improve? Well, I think it's also an opportunity to communicate with people that, that, that don't think at all about foraging, that, that they have food that's immediately to hand that, you know, up, up to now, they might have not even considered that, but I think to, to point that out to people at the moment. Yeah, the sales of my Polish books went up by 50% within the last month. Like I think all the authors are experiencing it, you know, that 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 these uh, wild edible plant books are selling very well now, and because because people get more interested in it, and people, some old friends phone me now and say, "Oh, I want to maintain contact with you because you might be a very useful person. Can you tell me this and that?" And you know, because uh, you know, people think it's it's an important thing. It's weird because I don't know about you, but I've always tried to distance myself a bit from the the sort of survivalist aspect of foraging just because um i don't know all seems a bit desperate but but when something like this happens you realize that 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 is a point on which a lot of people are going to connect you know they might they might not have romantic ideas about reconnecting with land but they do have very practical ideas about not starving so um that is a motivation to become aware of the wild plants that are growing near them yeah, here I should mention the experience of the former Yugoslavia. I put uh, some articles, uh, some some posts on my blog, thewildfood.org, about uh, one of it is, is the siege of Sarajevo, mm. when for three and a half years Sarajevo was cut off from most supplies, and the whole city was um, was surrounded by by army, by you know, and um, they got some food. They got some food from from um, the Allied forces. You know, they got some powdered milk and some pasta, which was dropped in in planes or smuggled through a tunnel. So it's not they were completely starving, but they didn't have electricity for most of the time. They didn't have heating in the houses. They had to cut trees in the city and you know make some makeshift stoves. And and the situation was terrible. And there were bombs falling. You know, some buildings were destroyed. People lived like rats for three and a half years, you know. It was, you know, end of 20th century. Yeah. And these people, you know, um, went through really, really hard time. And there was a botanist in Sarajevo, Professor Suleiman Regic, who organized um, a program. I think it was on some kind of local radio. And he was teaching people how to use wild plants for nutrition. A lot of people were like walking around uh, lawns and, you know, parks and collecting nettles and, and uh, you know, wild chicory and comfrey and clover and, and other stuff, you know, to add to soups. Mm. Uh, it's well documented. He wrote a paper about it, documenting actually which plants were used by people. Yeah, it's fascinating. We'll, we'll put a link on that. Yeah, it's uh, another... Another uh, interesting um, story is the work of uh, Josip Bakic. Um, it's, a, it's a Croatian researcher who organized, who was the main person in an army project in the former Yugoslavia, which lasted for a few decades. He started it as a young person, and they were training soldiers to survive on islands of the, of the Adriatic. And they did a lot of experiments with different sizes of groups of people foraging, like, you know, very small groups and larger groups. And they have had also doctors, like, looking at people, how, you know, 
in case something happened. And um, they recorded a lot of the stuff and published it. So I'm sure some of it was secret, but uh, then a lot of it was published. So this is very unique that we have an army which is making experiments with soldiers and they, they actually supply the information to the population. They started from a survey after Second World War. They did a survey of what kind of food was eaten in, um, uh, on the coast of the Adriatic during, during the war because they really suffered because the, the land is not very fertile. It's like Mediterranean climate and the production per square meter is not very high. And, um, you know, a lot of it is just rocks. And people had just like goats and sheep and olives and, and ate weeds and a little fields of potatoes. And, and what, during the war, some of the, some of the areas suffered terrible um, lack of food. Mm. So people would eat like pigeons and cats and foxes and turtles. Huh? Rats. Rats. Mm. I don't remember. I think they didn't. I don't think they did, but they did a lot of things. They ate like seabird eggs and um, it's, they made some statistics. I also wrote a post about it. And, um, and another, another, um, uh, another time was uh, the Great Famine of China, 1959-1961. Actually, when... When, when I hear about coronavirus and these stupid politicians shutting everything off, uh, this is like, really reminds me of China when they made this mistake. They wanted to change the economy, you know, and they encouraged people to um, turn a lot of tools into, into metal because they wanted to build factories. So always like a, a big change in economy is very dangerous. The same Russian Revolution, there was famine after Russian Revolution. When you change the, when you, when you disturb the economic cycle, you are always in danger of famine. And this is happening this year now in the world, when uh, people's activity is completely disturbed. And um, there are so many people in the world to feed now that we, I think that the food prices will skyrocket this year. They will skyrocket. And, um, you know, terrible stories what happened in China. You know, how many people, I mean, we don't know exactly, but it's estimated about 60 million people died of, of starvation. Wow. 60 million people. I mean, there was cannibalism. There was, you know, and people were just wandering around the mountains trying to find some roots and eat them. And, um, and I did interviews. I mean, I, I did a lot of field work in China. Um, in uh, a few provinces of China and we recorded the wild food because they are expert on it but there is a there is a generally a great tradition of using plants in China medicinal plants but also wild vegetables which was preserved and enhanced by the famine so if you talk now to people who are 70 or 80 they were kids or uh, young people during the famine I mean Interviewing people about famine in China is very difficult, and uh, I didn't. I, sometimes I had to do it indirectly, but they will tell you some stories. You know, like I remember a woman crying, saying that she survived the famine because they had a weeping willow by the house, and as a child she would just eat the leaves and the catkins of weeping willow, 
or I interviewed, uh, uh, I had a friend, actually was a friend who, he, when he saw uh, Bracken in Europe, he started crying. He was saying, oh, this is a very important plant for a family because of this plant, my mother survived the famine. Wow. She's eating the roots? Yeah, the roots, the roots and shoots of Bracken. And that's how they survived the famine. And um, acorns and, you know, when, you know, like uh, Solomon seal, I guess I should, I should just put a pause on that really quickly because um, there are some real issues around toxicity on Bracken, aren't there? So I don't want to just go out there without putting that. I can say, uh, make a comment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what I mean. We should just explore that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, Bracken is, uh, is packed with toxic chemicals and you have to know how to process it. But um, it's, uh, it contains the most carcinogenic um, substance, natural substance on earth, ptachylozide, which is in, in Bracken. It is the most carcinogenic natural plant substance on earth. And there are many cases of animal, farm animals getting various forms of cancer from feeding on bracken in Britain. And farmers know it. So it's very, very dangerous. At the same time, with proper processing, long-term processing, you know, boiling, baking, leaching, washing, it stops being so carcinogenic. It is sold in, in China. You can buy it in, in shops, the bracken roots. And... Uh, there are some. There is some epi, epidemiological data showing that in in parts of Asia where they you know eat a lot of bracken, it's increased incidence of of stomach cancer. But um, um, I don't think it's that dangerous in the form they sell. You know, I eat bracken all the time when I'm in Asia. Well, a little bit of reading I did on it. Apparently, in in Japan, they they eat the shoots in the spring or something, and then it started being um, done on a on a on a large scale and put in cans. So that meant that people were eating it at different times of the year, not just in the spring. And following that, the incidence of stomach cancer went up. So they they put that down to like if people just eat it in the spring, they're okay. But if they then start eating it out of a can, yeah, I mean, yeah. this is a sensible to do. Is the same with pyrolyzed in alkaloids, PA alkaloids. Yeah, they uh, they are common in some groups of plants, like in uh, comfrey, but um, this, which is the Boraginaceae family, but also in Asteraceae. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like ragworts, but also yeah. I think in thistles you would find some, or like like um, butterbirds and um, and yeah. coltsfoot and. Uh, Again, people ate these kind of things only in spring, not through the whole year. And uh, I think you have to be sensible if you just eat something, just use some plants three times a year, you know. It's a different thing than people eating it all the time. Or in large quantities like animals might do if they're fenced in. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the situations where animals are poisoned by plants is when animals have no access to other kind of food. So if there are fenced cows and they have a field and they cannot go anywhere else, at some point with desperation, they will eat this plant. The same with starving people. If, you know, I mean, in many countries in Europe, farmers were like, you know, tied to their villages. And when there was famine, you know, they couldn't go to land which is not theirs because other people would, be angry that they go to their land. So they, they had to forage in their own meadow, their own field. 
so they were desperate. In Poland, we had um, it was common to eat um, uh, bindweed during farming, right? Called Volvulus arvensis, but it caused some uh, neuro neuro neurotoxic problems. I've always wondered about that. Yeah, because there's the some there's like the sea bindweed is is it comes up in some some of the ethnobotanical literature as being a um, a leaf that was used. No, it's a, you know Convolvulus genus is used throughout Europe very little. So I know still people in Croatia who collect it. Right. Um, but it has but, that toxic effect if you if you're eating lots of it. Yeah, I mean they would put like one or two leaves in a in a soup mix. Yeah, this is fine. But people are starving. They would eat a lot of it, mm. a lot, and. Um, I remember an interview with um, written down in some ethnographic museum in Poland with a lady who was whose family was starving in the beginning of the 20th century, and they were eating thistles, circium, circium regulara, and uh, she said we ate so many thistles that you could fill the whole barn, and we were still going hungry. Yeah. So imagine if this woman is saying they ate a barn full of thistles. Yeah. So the toxicity effect is a scale is completely different. You yeah. know. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the typical syndromes of this um, famine poisoning was uh, um, swelling legs because um, uh, because kidneys were damaged. Mm. So you'd have a lot of toxic plants, and you could damage your kidneys, and then you would have like swollen legs. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It re it relates to everything, really, doesn't it? That that like people people have. People have become ill, eating too many carrots. You know, they've got vitamin A poisoning, and, and uh, or tuna cans, or 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 um or chickweed, which is one of the most popular little salads. Yeah, I got a I got a book on poisonous plants produced by the Ministry of Agriculture in the UK, and there was an entry on chickweed. It, and it took me I had to sort of engage with the book properly to realise that this was a book about the plants that have poisoned livestock, basically. The title was Poisonous Plants, but it was, it was, it was a book for farmers. And cattle had large yeah. of chickweed and, and had serious poisoning from saponins. Even cabbage can be dangerous. If you eat too much cabbage, and, uh, it's, very, it's very bad for your thyroid. It lowers your thyroid metabolism. People who have thyroid problems should not eat too much cabbage. Hmm. So we have to assume that every plant can be dangerous, used uh, you know all the time. Yeah, and it and it points back to the the sort of central argument I think that needs to be made about food and about farming and about everything is that what we need is diversity, and that interacts with our complex biochemistry by giving us lots of small amounts of lots of different things, but. You know, when we get industrialized or, or fenced in or, or whatever the situation that's, that's not as happens in the wild or is not natural, uh, all of a sudden we're in a situation where we just have too much of one thing. I, uh, well, in, the, in, in my book, I also wrote a chapter about a pyramid. Like, you know, we have a pyramid of nutrition. Like in some old books you would have, I don't know if you have it in England, but in Poland we had this like a pyramid drawn yeah, i've seen it i think i've seen it and the base is like vegetable you know the the um, 
cereals and then you would have you know maybe dairy or meat or vegetables or different combinations and uh, we I, I think we have to talk about the pyramid of um basic skills that people should have like what what the the civilization does it cuts us off from the base of the pyramid so people have no experience with even touching the soil you know collecting plants we're doing things with their hands yeah so the the base of the pyramid actually for creating security for for you know human societies would be just let people not forget that they have hands and you can do things with hands not only clicking you know things on the on the laptop but actually that you can chop a tree you can use a spade yeah and um uh recently i was uh you know i was um experimenting with putting some uh, uh meat cans in the ground like a survival provision in someone's land you know helping uh, you know, that's what you can do during the times of crisis. You can um, you can store some food outside your house. You buy a big plastic barrel and you bury it in the ground and, you know. And the person I was helping uh, to do it never used the spade. <laughs> and they just didn't have the muscles. They knew how to use the spade, but they didn't have the muscles. So uh this is the problem with the school you know that school um i mean british school is much better than polish school it's less academic but but still you know kids have sports they maintain the you know the the physical activity but it's kind of useless you know kids running around it's stupid i think it's just so stupid you know making kids run around for a few hours is better to have like a potato field in the school you know <laughs> yeah and also like kids doing things, but actually doing things with purpose, you know, in the countryside, you know, in, you know, usually people, anything they do, they do with a purpose. Even when they go to the forest, they would go thinking, oh, I'll find some mushrooms or I'll bring the, well, during, some, uh, during the lockdown, my kids are not at school. And so they've had to come with us. I've been very pleased about that because, you know, they've been picking wild garlic, siesta and, yeah getting involved yeah. in the in the in the practicalities that would that would never happen ordinarily um so you know so th there was a period in education when uh people forgot about it because it was obvious that you know at some generation in you know some generation it was obvious you know how to grow vegetables or or do these things for most people especially maybe not in england but in poland like yeah my parents generation they, they know they know all these things you know and so they were like uh you know giving a lot of attention to kids education about forgetting about the fact that their kids already never milked a cow never planted potatoes I think and then they surprised that their grandchildren are interested in it you know these, so, everything has been divorced from from the homestead basically i mean the the, the yeah. education yeah is is just we've got all of the parents to work in factories now because we've destroyed their cottage industry well this is england anyway i don't know what your history's like but in england the uh the common land was stolen and turned into larger scale farms and the and the cottage industries were destroyed by factories so that was a great opportunity for 
the people that own the factories to get everybody to move to a city and, and, and work in the factory. And of course now we've got to do something to keep the kids off the street. So that's where education comes in. But prior to that, the, the education was that you were part of your, your homestead. You were involved in whatever your parents were doing. Much better. Yeah. And it was very efficient. It was like, um, you know, it's actually, um, we give, put too much theory now into education. Actually, education was about just living. Everything was embodied. Everything was sensual, you know, with all your senses, your knowledge was, you know, like, you know, the, the first thing, if you go to, uh, to a forest of a Chinese farmer in the mountains, when they see a plant, the first thing they do, they pick a plant, they squash it and they smell it. Mm. And they go like, <sighs> so they look at the plant and then they smell it. It's like they always do it, you mm. know, to make sure. So that it's like a, such a very important sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the thing that it's, it's all the same as, as what you were saying with the, the kids running around on the sports field is like, what is that for? Yeah. You know? And then, and then our senses are kind of, overloaded in the uh in the modern context but we've got synthetic uh aromas and synthetic flavors you know and we're feeling textures from manufactured goods mostly made out of plastic for most people they're wearing plastic clothes and so on uh and it's all divorced basically from from real life or or you know your topic for your book of the wildlife or the natural life but like most people's experience. So here's it's, here's what I want to say. Um, I'm I'm just reading some stuff about the nervous system and 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 how you know it's evolved and and what it means to be an organism uh, is basically that you are active in your surroundings, and what it means to have knowledge is basically that you are active in your surroundings. There is no knowledge that isn't about moving about and doing stuff in relation to your environment so where does that leave us when we're actually not in the in the wild environment we're in this artificial one but 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 what it comes down to is there being two different aspects two different faces like two sides of a coin to the nervous system there's the sensory and there's the motor and the thing is when you when listening to you talk just then it made me think well there, there's the thing you see in 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 a in a normal way of life for, for rural people who, who are still engaged with the landscape, there is no sensory without motor. You know, you're not having your senses like staring at a screen or just smelling yeah. something, walking through a shopping center. All of your sensing is to do with actively doing something. And that actively doing something is, is, is getting you in, engaged and, and, and participating in your surroundings. And that's the problem with the lockdown because we have, um, like, uh, we have heightened um, nervous system, you know, heightened, um, we're excited by, we're terrified by what's happening. We would like to do things and we can't. So, so it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Like in my village, you know, now with the crisis coming, people say, oh, we're not worried. We just, uh, we just uh, planted more potatoes. So this is the response to the crisis. When you live near, close to the land, yeah, okay, go, there's gonna be you know economic crisis. I had an acre of potatoes. I will just plant an extra acre. I will plant an extra acre of wheat. Yeah, yeah. 
in case there is not enough food or in case I can, you know, the food get become expensive, I can sell it. And that's it. And um, so uh, I think a lot of the problems with the with people being scared now is because the spatial structure of the society changed. Like there are so many people who don't have any access to, to environment. Yeah. yeah. And um, I also, in my blog in English, I wrote uh, a post about fractals. You know fractals? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they are these, um, these uh, geometrical figures which, have, which are like infinitely complex. They are complex in a similar way on, on, on repeat, different levels. They repeat on different levels, but each time... Yeah, they repeat the, the pattern. And uh, we can imagine that we could make a society, we could make the spatial structure of our landscape like a fractal. So, so for example, we should have like half land, which is common land. If you imagine like people's access to land, half land is common land and half is private. And then when you look at the private land, half of it maybe should be for large farmers who can efficiently farm large you know, areas and uh, half should be for smallholders. And then if you look at the smallholders, maybe, you know, again, there should be half for like real smallholders and half for like, you know, people having little gardens. And again, with common land, we should, we can also, we can imagine the same thing like with um, how, you know, towns are made and everything. And I believe that once you, once you design landscape, which looks like a fractal, it's very, very resilient to uh, to c catastrophes and changes because it has different levels of complexity and in some situations one level can be better than another because in some situations maybe uh, large farms or large uh, shops or large organizations could be more efficient mm. but if there is and some asteroid hits us or something you know then again maybe it's more efficient to have small farming so we should maintain like all possible levels of diversity that's why it's important to maintain all sorts of weirdness in people you know all these you never know when it might come in useful idiosyncratic perverts or something they might be useful at some point you know because they they show different strategies and f wilson wrote about it saying that that even if you look at very simple societies like primitive farming societies or hunter-gatherers it the same thing happens as in our society there are some very hard-working people and some very lazy people in every society you have this problem and why would society maintain this because they are, they are different strategies these lazy people might be actually very good with waiting for game if you are a hunter and if you are lazy actually it's very easy for you to just sit behind a bush with your uh, with your bow and wait for hours and then an elephant comes or something and you shoot it you know so you never know which strategy is better the busy guy's gone home the busiest guy's gone home and he's yeah. and he's hungry but what about the use of space in in cities so this is something i think that that we've got a lot of potential for when you look at the actual surface area of the cityscape and obviously in terms of surfaces, there's a there's a hell of a lot more than you have just on flat land. 
Yeah, in, in China, in China, they uh, yeah, but in China, I wanted to talk about cities in not in the aspect of of uh, vertical uh, surface, but if you look go to China, they often grow vegetables in cities. Like you would have a tree along the road, and then they would like sow cabbages or radishes around the tree. Mm. Lawns are very rare in Asia. It's again, it's like these kids with like kids running. Lawns is something useless. Yeah. Well, other than the weeds, I mean, they, that, that makes it very useful when you've got medicinal and. Yeah, it's used for the weeds and also maybe as pasture, but actually, just an average lawn is quite, quite useless, you know, apart from, of course, producing oxygen. And, you know, if you have like uh, flowers, they feed bees and bumblebees, etc. But. Um, yeah, but what you said before, I will, I will go back, that um, um, cities are very complex. They have vertical walls and they have balconies and roofs. The roof garden uh, movement is very strong in Germany. Mm. They have an, they, it's been very strong for over 20 years, 20, 30 years, you know. And I believe in Singapore, they're doing a lot as well with, with, with roofs and, and even... Um vertical gardening so that the the walls themselves i mean it's easier in germany because they have more modern ar uh, architecture they also had a lot of damage during second world war so they have a lot of modern buildings and the german cities or polish cities looks more modern you know so it's easier to to install a roof garden on a block of flats than on a victorian you know terraced house of course i think a lot of this comes down to 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 really sort of large scale uh planning and and long-term strategy and the the the, uh, the obstacle is of course that that's not happening and there's not there's not a will for it to happen but i mean if you if you if you planned a city from scratch and thought in terms of design um that the whole system was being considered from from the uh from the outset you know energy and water cycling and sewage and and food production uh and I guess that it must happen somewhere. You know, there must be a situation where somebody will put money behind that in order to enable it to happen. I mean, I think Singapore, Singapore, they're trying to edge it in that direction. They've got this right-wing uh, dictatorship there that has got some quite green sensibilities. So they're kind of forcing things through that just won't happen in a, in a democracy. Not that I'm advocating dictatorships, but you know, it's an interesting situation there. There's a lot of thought going into how things could be done differently from a planning point of view, urban planning. But you know, I think I think I think we could plan in very complex infrastructure that ended up dovetailing with with biological um, eco structure, as it were, and be very productive for food. I think I think potentially the the city is is a uh, you know if we started seeing cities as landscapes, you know, the built environment as a landscape because it is a because it is a surface area that could be host to um, to growing mediums, and um, I'm really fascinated by what what you could do. You know that that skyscraper is is like a mountain. You know we could we could have mm. it if we really thought about that instead of just thinking of the building as okay, this is a container for for, for humans to live in. Um, if we say, well, no, this is this is a structure, and that's one aspect can be for yeah. humans to live in. Another aspect is it can be absorbing heat and 
light from the sun. It can be interacting with the wind. You know, do, do you know this thing about the um, the termites that they have this incredibly uh, stable internal temperature to a termite mound that is uh, warm, warmish in the winter and and cool in the summer. And it's all to do with some kind of weird sound vibration to do with the structure of the termite mound that, that makes the uh, air circulate in a, in a certain way. I forget even the technicalities of it, but it's, it's absolute genius. Um, that has somehow managed to evolve, co-evolve with the, with the, with the termites. So, I mean, they've got, they've got a structure that, that manages to, uh, to deal with that, you know, like to, to, to stable temperature. Um, without any kind of electronic devices like we we might we might um seek to involve but yeah i mean i think that's um i don't know i mean but how does that how does that intersect with with your um thinking about wildness you know because that's that's what i'm trying to push i'm i'm trying to push the idea of wildness as being the idea of complex systems which are self-organizing Basically. Yeah, I mean, definitely self-organizing because wildness is, you know, it's like letting go. It's like we don't want to control too much. Yeah. But it's, it's very complex, you know, and sometimes uh, letting things go wild too much might be bad. You know, it's like um, in uh, after the Second World War, there were a lot of national parks created in Poland. And some of them were created where there were beautiful grasslands in the Tatra Mountains. And there were shepherds with sheep. And the government said, okay, you can't graze the, the land anymore. And these beautiful crocus meadows got overgrown by, um, by trees, you know? Yeah, but, but, but that's, not, that's not letting it go wild. It's pulling one of the, one of the uh, key, it's pulling us as a keystone species that is facilitating the wildness. It's unplugging yeah. from that system. And that's, I think that's the problem that people are getting into when they're thinking about this is they, They've got this weird concept. How can you be even alive and having this conversation and talking about removing yourself, you know, when you, you, you are wild? You know, the, the so, so that's why, I, you know, we have to, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about this concept of rewilding Britain, you know, this Montbiot's um, well, stuff. The, the because I, they, they, I think you know, it, it's very good at, to some point, but actually in some in some uh, areas britain has been amazing in maintaining this incredible balance between humans culture history nature yeah amazing i mean the pro i think the main problem in in british agriculture is this uh, in britain is this agricultural class of landowners you know and also the this this orientation for for high yield of crops and so a lot of the countryside was just destroyed by fertilizers, pesticides. Yeah. But apart from that, you know, um, I think this Britain has this amazing in semi-open landscape. Which no, is you, ha you don't have enough woodland. You don't have enough woodland. But uh, I know. But um, but you have these old trees. Always when you think that you. It, Always, if British people, if they think sorry for Britain, that they, they have, I don't know, 10 or 15% woodland cover in Britain compared to, I don't know, 30% in Poland, yeah? You go, you know, you go to some uh, old park, and in an old park, in one park, 
near London, you would have more old trees than in the whole county in another country. Oliver Rackham wrote about it. I think, yeah. I think if you actually count all the ancient old veteran trees in Britain, there'll be more of them than in the whole of Europe. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that also should be taken into account. That then Britain, although it has a, you know really low uh, woodland cover, actually has uh, some really high quality areas which are like you know suburban parks and yeah. you know and um, well, it's and also, just hedges and yeah, and and it's also it is it is unbelievably diverse, like in terms of the geology and and the um, yeah, kinds of habitat, but Britain is Britain is pretty amazing. Um, but coming back to the George Monbiot thing, I think to me the the the, the lie of, of that approach is betrayed by the fact that that George Monbiot has recently been writing about his his suggestions what we're going to do about food production, and he's saying we're going to we're going to uh, we're going to grow it all in labs. We're going to develop microbiological ways of, of growing all our food in, in laboratories. I don't agree with it. I think it's a really bad idea. It's desperate. It's, it's insane. It's, it's just like how to make us not part of the ecosystem, basically. I absolutely don't agree. I think it's nuts. I think all these ideas that he presents, it, they remind me of like communists, you know, like Russian communists, you know. It's just something taken out of intellectual head. Yeah. It's like someone who hasn't got enough experience, I think, with actually making their own food, you know? The weird thing is when you read his and book... And also it's supporting the biotech. Yeah, no, exactly. But you read his book and you find out that he's, um, you know, he goes fishing and does a bit of foraging and things. But I guess it's the same. It's the same as the communists, you know? They, they, uh, they all, the, the elite communists, lived a very nice life, thank you very much. But, but they had this grand solution for, for everybody else which 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 was imposed from on high and um made life it's always very dangerous to introduce new it's always very dangerous to introduce new ideas and uh and always you have to try them in practice and also uh you have to try them for a very long time because sometimes you you might have some food production system which will work for one generation or two generations. You know, it's like having um, grazing animals in the Mediterranean. Yeah, at some point there were a lot of animals um, in ancient Greece, and you know, and uh, they were grazing, they were producing food, but they were deteriorating the soil. So generation after generation, the fertility of land goes down. I mean, that's probably one of the main reasons why ancient Greece, you know, disappeared is because they cut down the forests and and destroyed the soil. And yeah. actually, when you look at um, yeah, go ahead. When you look so at when you you know there is this book by Jared Diamond Islands where he shows that uh, actually most um, most uh, civilizations collapsed because of the ecological catastrophe. Yeah. So Monbius is right he's right about the fact that we are in a big crisis that our civilization is like ending because of the ecological catastrophe but i don't think that i think some of the solutions proposed are quite nuts yeah well i think i think it's because it's not looking at what is the actual problem and 
the way I see it is what we, we've got is like a dissociation, you know, like the, the dissociation being a term that the, uh, you know, psychologists have come up with to, to, to do with like a, a, a spirit or a mind that's not actually inhabiting the body, you know, it's like out of, out of sync, you know, well, we're like that with, with the landscape. We are dissociated from this natural landscape. You know, we're, we're part of it just as a person is a part of their own body. But like these psychological traumas happen so that people are not actually in touch with their own body at all. They can't feel the feedback. They can't be present. They can't do the things that a body's meant to do that like makes them able to listen to another human being and make eye contact and respond and so on. Well, you know, we're dissociated from this, this, this landscape. That's what's causing the problem. We're, we're completely out of kilter and not in a position where the things that we do are like a conversation. There's a two-way conversation that we, we respond and adjust what we're doing according to the, 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 the feedback that we get. So to, to, to my mind, the, 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 the solution that these guys are coming out with, I mean, James Lovelock apparently years ago said, oh, we should all retreat into, uh, into cities and live off hydroponically grown food. And that was quoted to me by Richard Maybe as part of that private exchange that followed the, the one that, uh, that you mentioned in, in The Guardian. You know, he said, I think we ought to embrace that philosophically, the idea of withdrawing to let wild nature recover, you know, but, the, but, the, but it, it's like madness. The, the, the point for me is that we've got this dissociation has happened, this complete lack of, of a two-way flow between us and the land. In other words, we've got out, you know, we've got, we've, we've, we've got out of sync and out of, out of relationship. And, and, and these guys are saying what we should do in order to fix that is to get even further out. Yeah. It's madness. We don't need to get out. We need to get back in. That's what we need. Exactly. I agree. And my, the problem now is that um, although there are a lot of people who are really like ecologically minded and they want to support biodiversity, want to have this uh, nature friendly lifestyle, there is a polarization. The another half of the society that knows nothing about the environment. A very good example is what they did in Spain recently when they bleached their beach. You heard about it. No. They wanted to disinfect it. They, I think there was an article about it in BBC uh, today or yesterday. Uh, some town in, in, in Spain bleached the beach to kill the coronavirus. Wow. But you have to be completely nuts, you know, knowing if you know nature, if you know how it reacts and how many different things there are in the beach and what effect it has, you know. So this is the this is the big problem. Is this also with the coronavirus? Is the hygienization? Yeah, like, like there are there are these city people that they like hygiene. There's just too much hygiene, you know. And the, this panic reaction to coronavirus is is hygiene, you know. It's like we want to remove it from the world. We just want to have everything clean. And then you know, in Poland, people wearing the government making you wear plastic gloves in shops and, you know, masks. And it's all about ster ster sterilization. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, we, yeah, we're, we're, we're a living system. So we can't, you know, we can, we can block the door as it were um, in these minor ways, but like. And another issue is that we are so, uh, so afraid of death that, that, you know, the fact that um, in some countries, like in Sweden, where where maybe the the actual rate of death might be a bit higher, but 
no one's killing people there. It's not that the government is killing people. They just had a different strategy. Or, or even in Britain in the beginning, I'm, when, when there was, there was, Britain was, I would say, open to the virus. Yeah? So that's why you have a lot of deaths. But actually, people get, but, but actually when you look at the number of people in the society, it's a very small fraction, you know? And we are scared of natural processes and you never know how to, where to draw the line because of course you can try to save every, every single person. So it's a very sensitive issue. I know that people get very, very upset when, when you talk about it, when you talk about letting go. And also because it's, a new, because it's a new virus and we don't know much about it, of course, caution is advised. But I'm talking about it in relation to nature in general, to our attitude that something is getting a bit out of control and people are panicking and governments are panicking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I see it a bit differently just because... I'm I'm kind of relishing the fact that this is so disruptive to to business as usual. I guess that's my main take on it. The fact that we've got this lockdown now is is just driving a shaft through um, the side of the engine, as it were. You know, like that that um, and I think whilst that is going to that in itself is going to put us probably in a very dangerous situation in many ways in terms of the economy, and and it might result in the kind of serious catastrophe that you're, you're talking about with, with, with total economic collapse having caused starvation in the past. But like the, the thing is, that's where we're going anyway. If this doesn't get disrupted, that's where we're going to go. You know, the soil is going to be exhausted. And, you know, if this doesn't get us, then something else will. So, yeah, I guess that's my main perspective. The main, the main uh, way of uh, protecting nature is discouraging people from having too many children. It's absolutely number one. I mean, it's number one. Yes. Yeah. I. Yeah. I mean, I kind of would agree with you, but I just think it's it's um it's not really very likely. You know, I think I think the the uh, the long term situation is that people will have fewer children as um there's less grinding poverty in the world because people people have more children when they're poor because yeah, that someone true. will be alive to look after them when they're old. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think making, all it, all it means is that you have middle-class people feeling slightly guilty about the three kids that they've got. And I've got four and I don't, I'm just refuse to feel guilty because what's the point? Oh, sorry, I didn't know. <laughs> I, only thought, I only took it personally when I actually let that come out of my mouth. Hadn't even occurred to me that that applied to me but that's how I, how much I'm refusing to feel guilty because I just, I just don't think whilst in principle, yes, on a meta scale, I agree. If, if we, if we could convince everybody and retrospectively me to not have so many kids, that would work. Are they all with the same woman? All four kids? Two, 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 two with two different women. So it's it's split into three people. So it's not that bad, you know? Well, and, and I've got just an exceptional person and, (laughs) I've got two aunts that didn't have kids. I don't know if that buys me anything. Uh, I don't know, but um, you know, so that we didn't we didn't reproduce that much as a. a but but you know, for me, it's just so unrealistic. You are not going to convince people to not have kids. They'll have kids if they want to. They won't have no, kids. No, but it's, it's good to bear in mind. You know, it's good to kind of. Oh, well, it's just know. in theory, but it's like in terms of a strategy, it it, it doesn't work. We're not going to achieve that. You know, the 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 uh, the so I mean, I, I'm personally not working on that 
thought experiment too much. Like I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to sort of stake out a little corner here, which, which you're right to call it optimistic. Um, that just the thought experiment, what if 9 billion human beings were profoundly integrated with the ecology of the planet? That's my thought experiment. What, cause, cause the point is, it's not about biomass. Yeah. So, so there's, there's not, it's not about there being the biomass of all the bodies of 9 billion people. Yeah. Because if it wasn't biomass of people, it could be biomass of insects and, and bacteria and whales yeah. and birds, you know, that's not the point. So there being lots of a certain kind of biomass is not the issue. The point is how does that biomass interact with all of the other species? And I feel sure that with, with, with the complexity of the human brain and the complexity of what we can uh, manage to instigate through, through technology, if we, if, if, if we were planning and aiming, and this probably isn't going to happen unless we have some serious catastrophe and collapse to, to make it happen, which might solve the problem because half the population might die. But, you know, I also ethically can't sit here wishing there to be a catastrophe that wipes out half of my species. I think that's, that's almost worse than being a cannibal, you know, to actually sit here wishing that something would kill four and a half billion. So we didn't have quite such a problem with the humans being here. So I, I have to start thinking where, where, where could it work for us to be this much biology? Because this is complex biology, my body, your body, it's good stuff. You know, it's not in itself, the spanner in the works. A human body has got this brain sitting on the top of it that interacts potentially with, with, with everything else to create culture that is incredibly complex and supports the life of the biosphere. If we did that on purpose, if we didn't just think I'm hungry, but we thought, well, hang on a minute, we've been here before. Everybody saying I'm hungry and grabbing X, Y, and Z meant there was nothing left and, and, and the ecosystem collapsed. So what if we think I'm hungry but how can I get something to eat in a way that that supports the ecological complexity of where yeah, I am? Developing the habits. And one of it would be growing food at school. I think it's really missing. Hmm. Growing food and also foraging. But like kids taught the contact with, with food. Yeah. Know, food production. Well, where does food come from? Um, yeah often repeating this but it's a question i ask kids where does food come from and for everybody else in terms of other species food comes from here right whereas, whereas kids grow up now thinking food is just this thing that arrives from somewhere else you know so yeah if, if we can if we can get kids to participate in this marvelous uh situation of food coming from this place where you are that's that's that yeah i agree and and let's get the kids foraging because um, that that starts recreating the linkages. Yeah, let's get to the kids. Okay, well, thanks for listening to this week's World Wild podcast. And yeah, I just want to add a thought to my long ramble at the beginning, actually. Um, just that in case you hadn't noticed, I'm not really advocating this um, exceptionalist position as some way of us kind of swaggering around in a superior manner. The point is, and, and I probably should have put this in there at the beginning, I hope anybody that was offended has made it right to the end so they can hear this slight correction, that basically what this means is an incredible responsibility because we have the power to influence so much. You know, we have the power to destroy, but we also have the power 
to heal and to mend. And in my view, we certainly have the power to create a new way um, of, of existing on the planet, which is not just with the, the, the benefits to humans in mind. And, you know, with this enlightened position of, of, of seeing how ecosystems work and the complexity of things, not having, you know, like a central control mechanism, that it is precisely by integrating ourselves in and becoming just one more complex aspect of, of the living systems, albeit, you know, from a keystone species sort of position, that, that we know that we are um, anchoring ourselves in the biosphere, but we are also bringing an enhancement of that complexity by, by designing a system of life, which does precisely that. Okay, so hopefully that's got me out of any hole that any of you um, would have felt that I got myself into with that, because, um, you know, I really don't want to uh, align myself with any of these kind of exceptionalist positions that basically put humans in, in a position of sovereignty over everything, um, like kind of rulership, uh, like in a patriarchal, hideous, colonializing empire sort of way. That's that's vastly distant from, from what I'm actually trying to say. And in fact, what I'm trying to say to me is is kind of the antidote to all of that. Yeah, that we kind of get back into the uh, the motherly wombness of the, of the biosphere. But but we find our position in that, you know, and, and the, there is a kind of masculine impetus that, that is valid and, and relevant where we, um, we see a way that we can um, be, you know, within the biosphere in a, in a very powerful but positive way. But, but it's, it's entirely because we base our approach on working with and not just thundering in and, and um, seizing control. Okay, well, I'll leave it there, I think. <laughs> so just in terms of plants that you can forage this week, uh, I'm just going to talk about hogweed and hop shoots. So uh, hop shoots, if you recognize the hop plant, there's a few little things that, that are sort of twisting and turning like vines. And, and emerging at the top of hedges and so on and sort of nodding out with these sort of nodding tips that are looking for something to hang on to. So there's black, oh, I always forget whether it's bryony or byrony. Uh, I think, no, it must be bryony. Um, that's one, which they, they do eat the young tips in, um, in Spain, boiled like asparagus, but, but hop shoots is the one I'm suggesting you go looking for. Uh, but just check that you've um, identified it correctly based on it having hop leaves further down the vine, I guess. But they're out in abundance at the moment. And um, this afternoon I found some that couldn't find anything else to crawl up. So the, the, the hops were kind of crawling up themselves. It was quite fun. Uh, and they end up sort of twining around each other to form a, a rope, which is a little bit more steady and, and robust than well, a bit firmer than, than the, the single vine. It's, it's, it's quite a good metaphor, I guess. Um, so they're able to keep reaching up in the hope of finding something they can twine to. But anyway, it's the first four inches of those um, hop shoots that you want to get. And you just very briefly boil them for two or three minutes. Use them just like asparagus with a bit of butter or hollandaise or put them with pasta or something. They're really, really uh, delicate flavor. And it's just for a few short weeks at this time of year that you can eat them. And then hogweed. Now, hogweed is one of my favorite vegetables. On a day like today, you have to be a bit careful picking it. It's been very bright sunshine. Hogweed has uh, furacumarins in, which if you get the sap on your skin, it makes it very uh, highly sensitive to a certain bandwidth of UV light. So that's a, there's a quick word of caution. Don't get the juice on your skin. But, you know, I've only ever suffered from that once in all the years I've been picking it. I believe people with red hair, their skin is a little bit more sensitive to that, should be especially careful. But with that slight um, health warning aside, hogweed is a fantastic vegetable. Uh, it's got great big leaves at the moment with big chunky stalks, and you can chop them down and put them in a stir fry or put them in a crunchy salad. 
the leaves. You can also chop and put in a salad, but chop them very finely. They're, they're, they're quite fibrous, which, of course, is a good thing. It boosts your gut flora. Uh, but you'll need to chop it finely to not make it too chewy. And then it can also be cooked down like in, in, uh, in hot butter or something and, until it's crispy as well. Or you could put it in a mixture of greens. And also just now the hogweed is beginning to put up the first stems and they're an absolute delicacy. Uh, so you peel them and they're, they're just sweet and juicy. One of the things my kids most love to eat when we're out for a walk. And uh, yeah, you can eat them raw, cook them as a vegetable, put them through salads. They're just wonderful. And you kind of got to grab them while you can because it's a fairly short season. They get quite tough and fibrous. However, you do get a second wind with hogweed uh, stems because... As the plant gets bigger and the, and the and the the main stem is a bit tough, you get the the smaller stems coming up with the buds on, uh, and and if you grab those, you can harvest the buds and use them separately. But but the stem beneath the bud is also very sweet, juicy, and tender, just a little bit smaller than the main stems. Okay, so those are some some good things to look out for. As ever, I'm not going to give detailed sort of identification notes. It's not really the medium for that, but I'm sure you can access that by. Um, you know, using your, your search engine, looking at the images or, or consulting any plant books that you might have. Okay, well, thanks again for joining us. And uh, that's it for this week's Worldwide Podcast. Like it's light shining through